thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you, leadsa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It is 26 minutes to 10 o'clock. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. The Naked Scientist is in the house and ready to strip science to its bare essentials. Chris, good morning to you. Welcome. Hello, Ray. Hi there. Is it getting better weather-wise? I heard it's going to snow until January. Well, I'm looking out of the window now. Excuse me. And I'm looking upon a snow-covered landscape. So we have lots of snow again. And it's really beautiful, actually, but very cold. Mm, I'm sure. By the way, I enjoyed your chat with uh, Simon Gear yesterday. Simon Gear yesterday? Yes, you were on ah, the radio no, we... talking about cloning or something. No, we were talking about fingerprints. Fingerprints, and if they'd be the same yes. from the original and the cloned uh, version. Yes, I heard that. Yeah, why, why clones and twins, mm. which, are, you know, twins are nature's natural clones, why they don't have necessarily the same or ever the same fingerprints. That's right. Mm. All right, let's go straight to the lines, and uh, Colin in Robertham is holding on. Good morning to you, Colin. Good morning. Electrical storm questions. I was in Port Elizabeth mm-hmm. looking across at the storm and the house about 200 yards away. See it clearly. There was a bit of a ravine a ravine between us a strike of lightning and then I can only describe it as a fireball about the size of a football rolled across the apex of the roof which is what we call a tin roof in this country another explosion and gone uh, it steamed we thought it was on fire and we rushed across there but it was steam what was that fireball and then I've got a, a very small question to ask after that hi Colin um I can only guess that this was some kind of ball of plasma. Um, When you have a very high temperature spark like lightning, which runs at about 20 to 30,000 degrees, so it's five or six times the surface temperature of the sun, a bolt of lightning, very, very hot, this is sufficiently high temperature to rip the electrons away from the protons in the nucleus of an atom. And when you separate uh, particles into these ions like this, you turn them into a plasma. And it may well be that there was something on that roof which got ionised very, very vigorously like this and then produced a local ball of glowing plasma. Maybe there was some carbonaceous material or something else on the roof which fed that like a fuel and, uh, and it burned. Um, maybe dust or dirt or something like that created it. But it's probably that's what it was. It was the lightning creating very intense electric field with heating and you created a plasma ball. Right, and Colin, you said you've got one little question. One little question. I've got a a little dog. He's a lovely little chap. He loves to play in the garden. But when the clouds start to come in, when our Heifel storms are about to start, he won't go out to play at all. Yet we cannot hear anything. It may be miles away. What senses is he using that uh, tells him a storm is coming? 
Hmm. Well, dogs have an exquisitely well-adapted sense of hearing. It's much, much more acute than our own. And it may be that there are vibrations which are at very low intensity and within the dog's range of hearing that he is picking up, which tell him there's a storm in the distance. Another possibility is that the dog's very attuned to ground vibrations because when you have heavy storms and things, you can get low-frequency vibrations and infrasounds coming in. Some of them will transmit along the ground, some just through the air. And as a result, uh, animals are attuned to this. And you can think about it from an evolutionary point of view. That might be a good idea because if an animal knows that there's something going to change catastrophically in its environment, then it needs to seek shelter. For instance, birds are quite good at this. You'll hear birds go quiet before a storm or make a lot of noise before a storm to warn each other uh, something's up. And I suspect the dog is in some way sensing that there's this pressure change going on, there's probably going to be some wind in a bit, and better go and get shelter. Exactly what sense the dog is using. The only way to do that, and it'd be a bit cruel, would be to, to try removing some of the senses from the dog temporarily. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a pair of dog earmuffs <laughs> or a dog blindfold or something in order to see uh, which sense probably the dog is using. But mm. it's more likely to be a combination of things. The dog is well-tuned to the environment and is probably putting together a range of stimuli that he's using to work out that there's going to be a storm. Thanks, Colin. Lovely questions. Do. Thank, thank, thank you. you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Colin. Ronnie in Seapoint. Hello, Rini. Hi I'm there. Pretty, I'd like to ask your guest, uh, your the scientist, a question. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what's recently come up, you, you were speaking about it the other day, was about that uh, um, arsenic is taking the place of phosphorus in certain life forms. Now, I asked him a question about two or three months ago, four months ago, about is carbon-based life the only kind of uh, life that you get on Earth. And I was cut off, but I do believe that uh, silicon does form a basis of life amongst certain life forms like salamanders. And I don't think the scientist was aware of it. I'd just like to ask you to confirm that. Okay, the line is very bad. Chris, I hope you got that. Yes, hello, Ronnie. Um, you were referring to this paper that came out in Science, mm -hmm. um, which was from about a week ago, and what those scientists at, at, at Arizona State University in Texas were doing, sorry, Arizona State University in Arizona, I don't know why I said Texas, um, what they were doing was going to Mono Lake in California, taking some samples of the water, and there are bacteria living in that very arsenic-laced water, which have evolved to be able to survive in those arsenic-rich environments. They then put the bacteria in a culture dish, which had a very high concentration of arsenic, and they slowly removed the phosphorus from the culture medium until there was no phosphorus and only arsenic and the bacteria were still able to grow and then subsequent experiments showed that the arsenic had taken the place of phosphorus, they believe, in the tissue in the bacteria and this included in proteins, cell walls, in lipids and also in the DNA. And the reason that they claim this is possible is because if you look at the periodic table of elements then arsenic sits directly below phosphorus and is capable of many of the same chemical reactions, but is a, just a slightly different size. It's below phosphorus, so it will be a slightly bigger atom and therefore is capable of involving itself in many of the same chemistries that phosphorus does and therefore is an analogue for phosphorus and can be substituted. But this is by no means a general rule. What this research shows is that this chemically is possible. Um, what Paul Davies, who is one of the authors on that paper, is really looking for is what he dubs a shadow biosphere.
the possibility that life based around the key elements carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulphur and phosphorus, the chance elements as we call them, that this may be a simplification and there may be other forms of life that are capable of substituting one chemical for another. Um, there are some rare examples on Earth of organisms substituting one type of chemical for another in the same way as arsenic has been used in these bacteria for phosphorus. For, for phosphorus. But this is not a general rule, and these organisms are not that common um, in terms of when you look at life in general. But it's not to say it's impossible. I'm not aware of anything that's using silicon instead of carbon because the two are slightly different, but that's not to say it's not possible. And if anyone knows of any examples, do please tell me. Okay, thank you very much, Ronnie, for your question. And speaking of chemicals and life, Chris, here's an SMS here. If the trees are, through the process of photosynthesis, responsible for oxygen in the atmosphere, which we need, how come in autumn or winter, especially where it is cold and trees are covered in snow, how come there is no shortage of oxygen? Yes, a very good question. Well, there are two things to consider here. Yes, plant-based, sorry, land-based plants are responsible for contributing a lot of oxygen to the atmosphere in the Amazon rainforest locks away enormous amounts of carbon dioxide and returns oxygen into the atmosphere all the time. That's true, um, because the process of photosynthesis is that sunlight provides the energy which drives the chemical reaction CO2, carbon dioxide, plus H2O, water, goes to C6H12O6, that's glucose, plus um, some O2, oxygen. Now, the other point is that land-based life, plants only make up a, a very tiny amount of the total number of plants on Earth because the ocean contains huge numbers of plants in the form of algae. And these marine algae auto -fo also photosynthesize. And most of the oxygen that we see circulating on Earth is actually coming out of the ocean. And therefore, even though the trees in the northern hemisphere may become snowbound and leafless during the northern hemisphere's winter, there's still the southern hemisphere, and there is, of course, still the ocean to help us out. And at the same time, we also have a very large planet, relatively speaking, with a big atmosphere and a very big reserve of oxygen. So we're only using a small fraction of the oxygen on the planet at any one time. That said, if you do make sensitive measurements seasonally, you can demonstrate when it's summer and when it's winter in terms of the concentrations of gases. Most of the tree cover uh, is on the northern hemisphere and therefore most of the oxygen supply coming from land-based life comes from the northern hemisphere. And so in the winter time, when it's winter in the northern hemisphere, you will see a dip in CO, a dip in oxygen, a rise in CO2, and this is because also most of the world's population live in the northern hemisphere, and then when the summer comes in the northern hemisphere, those numbers reverse themselves. So CO2 levels go down a little bit again, and oxygen levels come up. So you do see an effect, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a small one, and you mustn't forget to include the ocean in the equation, because the ocean's contribution to world oxygen is huge. Dorothy in Sunnyside, hi. Hello. Mm. Hello. I just want to ask Chris, please. Um, I've gone for my driver's license, um, you know, renewal, and I've been told they tried a couple of times I have no uh, print, fingerprint. Um, my friend and my husband and so many of us now are being told the same, and then he sort of overrides it with his fingerprint. I just wonder how this can happen because I heard the other day that uh, a, a man that was burnt beyond description, they actually blew up the skin, and they still found his fingerprint. And Chris, I just wonder how I can walk around and be told that I haven't got a fingerprint. 
Hmm. Uh, so if anyone's had their house broken into in Dorothy's <laughs> neighbourhood recently, uh, have you been Chris. shaving your fingerprints off with a, filing them off with sandpaper, Dorothy? I don't know. Um, you, you have fingerprints because on the pulp, on the surface of your fingers, the skin is thrown up into a series of ridges and folds. And for a long time, no one actually knew what fingerprints were for, but there's a researcher at the University of Manchester, his name is Roland Enos, E-N-N-O-S, and he published a paper last year actually with his PhD student investigating what the role of fingerprints might be, bizarrely. And it's a lovely paper. What the pair of them did was to spend a summer dragging their fingers up and down bits of tilted perspex to work out how much friction a finger generates. Mm -hmm. And they find that fingers produce friction in the same way that rubber tyres do on a road. And therefore, fingerprints can't be there to help you grip because... If you want to get the maximum grip betre- between a, a rubber tyre and the road, then you don't have any tread. Fingerprints are a bit like tread, aren't they? So it may be that the fingerprints are there as some kind of watershedding device, but they may also be there as some kind of reserve of skin, so that when you apply a shear force, when you grab something, the skin can stretch out and spread, and this, A, increases the amount of grip because it, in, it spreads out the skin and makes it have a, a flatter surface, but also it means you've got a reserve of skin to avoid getting damage and blistering. So the, the fingerprints are there because of the intrinsic structure of the skin. Some people who have severe damage to the skin, be that chemical or thermal from burning or because of some other trauma, can lose that fingerprint pattern. Um, so that's an acquired change, but most people will intrinsically have it. Um, so I'm not sure why your fingerprints may have become thin. I mean, it may just be that as you get a little bit older, skin does become a bit thinner anyway because you lose some of the proteins, the collagen and elastin in mm-hmm. the skin, and it could be that the thinning of the skin means that whatever technique they're using to detect the fingerprint has become insufficiently sensitive to see your fingerprint. But under a microscope, if you look carefully, you should see, if you haven't had trauma to your skin in some way, you should still see some kind of pattern there. It should be possible to pick it out. Mm. So scientifically, it's just impossible to be a human being and not have fingerprints. Well, you, it, nothing's impossible in science, but okay. everyone has fingerprints because of the way we develop and the patterns on the skin. And it's rather, uh, it's rather unlikely that mm. you'll have suddenly acquired having no fingerprints. And um, that's the kind of thing that secret agents uh, would absolutely love to have. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Let's go to Adam in Ren Park. Hi. Oh, Good day, folks. Um, mm. I was wondering... Given what scientists know about human evolution up until this point, are they able to predict what our next evolutionary step will be? Okay. Hi, Adam. Um, I think that, well, if, if you think about it, we're evolving all the time. We're always reproducing, and as we reproduce, we introduce changes. Um, a recent paper found that each parent adds about 50 to 100 new genetic changes every time uh, they pass on their genes between themselves and their next set of offspring. And so we're always acquiring new genetic diversity. And as Darwin taught us 150 years ago with his book On the Origin of Species, it's selection, um, or natural selection by, or it's evolution by natural selection. In other words, you've got the, the acquisition of changes in response to environmental pressures. And the organisms which are best adapted to an environment will survive, flourish and pass their genes on, and so you select out the genes that do best for you. Well, the world's a changing place, and a few thousand years ago, when human beings uh, were challenged by microorganisms all the time, we didn't know where our next meal was coming from, and life was much harder, 
then the combinations of genes that we carried um, were there to help us to store lots of energy so that when we did have a lean time, we had a reserve of energy to fall back on. If you wind the clock forward to the modern day, food is much more rarely in short supply for many people, luckily, but we still mm -hmm. carry a genetic legacy of thousands of years ago, which is why we're seeing uh, an increasing obesity amongst the population. People are putting on weight because their genes tell them, hey, I need to store energy. So what will probably happen in the future as food goes into excess for the majority of the world is that you'll see a shift towards people who can survive in a thin fashion in a fat world, if you see what I mean. Um, in other words, in, in a world where there's excessive numbers of calories, people who don't gain weight will be fitter and mm -hmm. healthier, and therefore they will be benefited. People who can uh, get away without ever taking any exercise every day because they sit at a computer all the time instead of doing manual work, these kind of things. So this is a simple and a simplified uh, example, but you, uh, hopefully you can follow my point that the world has changed, that we live in a different world than we did when we first evolved into modern humans, and therefore there will be different genes that help us now than helped us historically, and those genes will become more common in the population. I've got an SMS here. Um, actually, no, let's go to Audrey first. Audrey in Dunkeld, you've been holding on for a while. We'll read the SMS in just a moment. Good morning, welcome. Morning. Yes. Morning, Chris. I would like to ask you, we have rather a large lake in Johannesburg, and I often take my grandchildren to feed the ducks. Now, we can sit on the side of the lake with not a duck in sight. And the minute I very quietly open the plastic bag to take the bread out, they swim across in absolute droves. How do they hear or know that I've got the bread for them? Oh, fantastic. Hello, Audrey. Is, where, is that Zoo Lake you're talking about? Yeah, that's close yeah, to the lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, um, went and had a lovely lunch there the other day. Mm. Um, the answer is that, just as we were saying with, with dogs and other animals being well in tune with their environment, the ducks have learned that certain cues, certain sounds, often go alongside a meal. Because a really good way to train an animal is with food. Uh, especially dogs, but also other animals know that uh, when they get, if they do something, they get fed. And so animals can learn that a certain combination of factors there together probably means food. And so the sound of children's voices, the sound of a rustling plastic bag, and they think, aha, that's the dinner bell. And because they've learned over the course of many, many times, there's an association between children's voices, it's a certain time of the day, rustling of plastic bag, that means food, then they then come to wherever they know you are to get fed. But also they learn from other uh, animals because people have now done studies showing that even organisms as simple as tiddlers, you know, little fish, sticklebacks and things, can learn off each other and they watch what others are doing and then incorporate that into their behaviour. So the ducks are learning both directly off their own back but also they're watching what you're doing with the other ducks and thinking, hey, I need to get in on the action. <laughs> and this is all part of, of survival because if you ignore what's happening to your colleagues, then you could become a cropper by making the same mistakes they do or missing out on the benefits they're getting. So animals are pretty tuned in to what other animals are up to because it can act as a useful sort of barometer of what's going on. Thank you very much, Audrey, and enjoy feeding those ducks. Let's go to Pat in Lone Hill. Hi. Hi, Rudy. Mm. Hi, uh, Chris. Chris, I'd like you to firstly to explain what ALD, the condition or disease ALD is, and how Lorenzo's oil uh, um, has helped, you know, with, uh, with the children, especially who suffer from that ALD. Mm. 
of the research is on Lorenzo's oil. Were you watching the movie last week? Because yes. they had another yes. repeat, 101th one uh, on DSTV. <laughs> but anyway, thanks very much, Pat, uh, ALD and Lorenzo's oil. Thank you, Chris. Hello, Pat. Um, this is an inbuilt genetic disorder. And there's a range of these different disorders, which are storage disorders. And they include things like Crabber disease and Pompe's disease, metachromatic leukodystrophy. Um, there's also um, well, there's a whole range of these different conditions. And what causes them is an enzyme defect. And if you look in your cells, you have a metabolic pathway, which uh, where a substance, rather like the production line in a factory, a substance is made, it's fed into another enzyme which adapts it and turns it into something else, and this feeds it into another process, and that's the raw material for that process, and along the way you're making other things that cells need, and it, this all runs smoothly and keeps cells healthy. But if one of the enzymes in that metabolic pathway doesn't work properly, this would be a bit like in your factory analogy, uh, the conveyor belt is going along and it tips things into a big hopper or something and that hopper then takes them to another bit of the factory. If the hopper isn't working and the products are just falling onto the floor, then pretty soon the floor is going to get covered in the product rather than it going into the right bit of the factory and this is going to be become a problem. This is what happens in these storage disorders in cells. An enzyme or a critical component of the metabolic pathway is broken. Uh, uh, offspring inherit some kind of gene defect from their parents which makes their enzyme in that critical bit of the metabolic pathway not work and whatever that enzyme did is lost and so in the cell you start to build up levels of whatever chemical or byproduct is there and some cells can tolerate a certain amount of that happening um, but eventually the build-up becomes toxic and it begins to damage the cells and depending upon which enzyme's been damaged, certain enzymes are more functional in certain tissues than others and therefore certain tissues show the effect of these accumulations before others. And as a result of this accumulation, you then get damage to the tissue and symptoms. And what that Lorenzo's Oil film beautifully highlights is that sometimes it's possible to prevent the build-up of these particular um, toxic substances by uh, either bypassing the broken bit of the metabolic pathway, by encouraging chemicals to be used by other enzymes, by stopping the thing that's toxic building up in the first place, or adding a drug which in some way binds to the enzyme that isn't working and changes it a bit so that the enzyme then can begin to work. And this is the hope. There are people now developing various uh, drugs and small molecules that can tweak these metabolic pathways. And there's one quite uh, or relatively more common disease called Gaucher's disease, which is caused by a deficiency of an enzyme called glucocerebrosidase. And this causes uh, bone problems and joint problems in people who inherit it. And so people are now developing small molecules which can stop the accumulation of the particular chemical in cells that damages the cells and as a result the symptoms tend to be much more slowly acquired so the person has many more years of health or can even return to health having had some symptoms from the disease and Lorenzo's oil 
was uh, creating a chemical that could work in the same sort of way. And it's very, very difficult to do this, and so progress is quite slow. Mm -hmm. But the glucose rebrosidase Gaucher's disease has been something of a success story in recent years. Thank you very much, Pat, for that lovely question. And the Naked Scientist, this brings us to the end of our interaction for the year. I'm taking a break, and I'll be back uh, next year. But thank you so very much for all the wonderful shows that you put together for us every single Friday. We really love it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And have, have a wonderful Christmas, wonderful New Year, and I'll see you in 2011, Reedy. Absolutely. Ta-ta. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.